just before I begin this morning, I do want to welcome um, Ron and Nancy Riggs with us and other members of their family. We're very uh, delighted to see you again. Thank you for visiting with us today. I also bring greetings from Pastor Rich. Uh, He and I were in communication this morning via text, and he asked me if it was appropriate to give greetings to the congregation. It is appropriate. Um, I also want to take just a moment to inform those of you who were not able to be with us at our last family meeting that we um, helped the congregation understand that we're very close to turning the final corner on being able to pay for the entirety of the new building, uh, which comes to a total of $2.4 million. We are down to a mere 300000 mere in comparison to 4.2. In another respect, it's a lot of money. But we are asking the congregation for the first time in the history of this church to be very sacrificial and prayerful about the possibility of what you could do to help us turn this last corner. Uh, We want to think very uh, creatively about maybe not taking a vacation, maybe selling some extra car that we don't need that much, possibly taking some money out of savings, uh, maybe not going to restaurants as often as normal for a whole year. Whatever your imagination may conclude after prayerful consideration, uh, we would be very, very grateful. As you well know that we don't... um, browbeat our people for money or for giving. We don't take up an offering in the normal way. We believe that healthy Christians give liberally and cheerfully. And this is a great cause. It's a cause uh, that is directly related to the gospel. It's not just about Heritage Christian School having a gymnasium. However, that is not insignificant because the school has been greatly used of God uh, in the conversion of sinners. In this community, and anything that makes us more attractive and more effective is good for the gospel. It will also become the worship center. We will have new offices. We will have a bookstore. There are many, many blessings await us in the construction of that building. So lovingly, uh, your pastors are, I'm going to use the word pleading with you, beseeching you to give very, very sacrificially and liberally and help us turn this corner, finish this project without needing to borrow any money. Now, having said all of that, there are forms sitting on the front pew right in the corner here near me, which simply give you the opportunity to pledge what you would hope by the grace of God to give by June 1, 2012. And we would like to collect these Uh, one Sunday before the last Sunday of this month where we'll have a family meeting so that we can report to you how we're doing in terms of sacrificial giving. So if you weren't here, you didn't get a form, please come up after the service and find one in the corner of the pew here and take it home, talk to your wife, talk to your children, and prayerfully consider what you could do by way of uh, sacrificial giving for this great cause. Um, Two other things, and then I... I'm through with the preliminary remarks. Let's pray for Ron Miller. He is preaching at Crossroads today, and Pastor Jonathan is preaching at Cornerstone. And I just want to give warm greetings to John and Nancy Bloor, our dear friends uh, whom we love so much. Um, And I can't help but think, John and Nancy, of how appropriate Psalm 23 is for you. Uh, We love you, and we pray for you. And we miss you and we rejoice in the fellowship that we have with you in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I assume that you are still at Psalm 23. If not, I would ask you to turn there, please. In just a moment, we will be looking again at this text. I'm going to read something from our friend David Paulson. Not in a personal sense, but a man for whom we're very thankful. He is one of the leading biblical, theological men of our day, writing on the subject of counseling from a 
distinctly biblical perspective. He, in many respects, is considered to be the leading theologian and writer on this subject. Writing for Focus on the Family, he says the following. This quote will be a little longer than normal, but I think it's captivating and justifiable. Garrett, 23, is a recent college grad. When some little thing frustrates him, he doesn't get his way. He explodes in anger. He goes way over the top. In college, he was an episodic binge drinker. But he started to drink regularly and heavily over the past year. The effects of alcohol in him are unpredictable. Sometimes booze mellows Garrett out. But most of the time, it lowers his threshold for violent hostility. In addition to his growing drinking problem, he routinely turns to online pornography for a fix. His friends don't know about that, but they fear for his future, wondering if he will self-destruct with his drinking and violent temper. Official diagnosis and current street wisdom, quote, Garrett suffers from intermittent explosive disorder, IED, and is an addictive personality, and Garrett is all about Garrett and has control issues big time. End quote. Sarah, a 29-year-old single woman, has become increasingly preoccupied with her looks, her calorie intake, and her exercise regime. She often feels fat, and at five foot nine inches tall and weighing only 103 pounds, she's relentless in her activities and self-care. Competitive, always trying to prove herself, her roommates and family have become more and more concerned. Sarah seems joyless and has been detaching herself from normal social interactions. She seems nervously self-preoccupied most of the time. So she has little time, energy, or attention for anything or anyone besides herself. Diagnosis and current wisdom? Quote, Sarah has anorexia, and she's a perfectionist with low self-esteem. Paulson goes on to tell us about Lise, who's 32, and Chandra, who's 21, a senior in college, giving what the world would consider the proper diagnosis for these individuals. And then he says this, not immediately. He said many things in between what I just read in this. Christ overthrows dictatorial desires. The fruit of his Holy Spirit makes life worth living. Of course, the freedom is never all at once, one and done. But Jesus creates new conditions for life in our lives now. He begins to make right all that goes so wrong. He sets about the long, hard answering of the complex questions. He begins a lifelong freeing process. From Jesus' point of view, there are two fundamentally different ways of doing life. One way you're connected to God, who's involved in your life, Psalm 23, is all about this. The Lord is my shepherd, and his goodness and mercy follow me all the days of my life. The other way, you're pretty much on your own and disconnected. Let's call this the anti-Psalm 23. Quote, I'm on my own, and disappointment follows me all the days of my life. We'll look first at the anti-Psalm way of doing life, and then he suggests the psalm that Garrett would have to write and sing. And maybe, maybe, almost certainly, some of you who are listening to me this morning, this would be your anti Psalm 23. It's the only psalm you can write. But it's mournfully sung. I'm on my own. No one looks out for me or protects me. I experience a continual sense of need. Nothing's quite right. I'm always restless. I'm easily frustrated and often disappointed. It's a jungle. I feel overwhelmed. It's a desert. I'm thirsty. 
My soul feels broken, twisted, and stuck. I can't fix myself. I stumble down some dark paths. Still, I insist. I want to do what I want, when I want, how I want. But life's confusing. Why don't things ever really work out? I'm haunted by emptiness and futility, shadows of death. I fear the big hurt and final loss. Death is waiting for me at the end of every road. But I'd rather not think about that. I spend my life protecting myself. Bad things can happen. I find no lasting comfort. I'm alone, facing everything that could hurt me. Are my friends really friends? Other people use me for their own ends. I can't really trust anyone. No one has my back. No one is really for me except me. And I am so much all about me. Sometimes it's sickening. I belong to no one except myself. My cup is never quite full enough. I'm left empty. Disappointment follows me all the days of my life. Will I just be obliterated into nothingness? Will I be alone forever, homeless, free-falling into void? Sartre said, he was a philosopher, quote, Hell is other people. I have to add, hell is also myself. It's a living death. And then I die. You know what's wrong with Garrett and Sarah and Lise and Chandra? They have only an anti-Psalm 23 to write and sing. What they really need is to know the shepherd and to be able to sing what we just sang a few moments ago. To truthfully confess Psalm 23, they need to return to what Peter calls the shepherd of your soul. Quote, end quote. That's First Peter chapter 2, verses 20. 4 and 25. It reads, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep. You were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. That's what Peter writes to believers who could sing Psalm 23. And I ask you this morning before we look at it, which is your psalm? The anti-psalm or the real one? Do you know the shepherd? Well, I am beginning this morning, as you probably well know, to launch the Summer Psalm series, we will be preaching only from 15 of them out of this wonderful book, which is sometimes called the Psalter, which is a book which contains 150 songs. It's one of the poetic books, one of the five poetic books. 150 songs written by several poets, perhaps 75 of them or more were written by David but others were written by other poets. And they wrote together about the various emotions of Christian experience. Some of those emotions being peaceful and bright, some of those emotions being fearful and dark. Emotions ranging from anger, envy, uncertainty, fear, loneliness, guilt, despair, sorrow, depression, anguish, hatred, to emotions such as dependence, hope, security, confidence, peace, satisfaction, triumph, devotion, love, joy, and exuberance. We will actually, in this brief series, 
seek to open up four psalms in particular in order to give a word of encouragement to dads. That will be July the 17th. To young people, August the 14th. To moms, August the 21st. And to the elderly, September 25. But this morning, we are privileged to consider Psalm 23 as Pastor Mark confessed in his prayer to God. And I think accurately, the most familiar portion of Scripture in the whole Bible. If I had asked you, what do you think is the most familiar portion of Scripture? Some of you might have said John 3.16. That's true to Christians. But that's not true to the world. Almost the whole world, in as much as it's been exposed to Christianity, the Bible knows Psalm 23. It's the passage that parents tend to teach their children and have them memorize. It is truly the most familiar portion of Scripture. It is read in hospitals. It is read to people on sick beds in their homes. It is read and sung at funerals. Countless times, hundreds, even probably thousands of times every day. And I will confess to you that I wrestled in my soul, perhaps with some fleshly thoughts and weakness. How do I preach a sermon to a well-taught and mature congregation like Heritage on the most familiar passage in the entire Bible? And I think the answer is simple. You preach it by being faithful to the text and by trusting God to bless his people. I've never preached on Psalm 23 in what is now, Brother Mark, the beginning of my 40th year here. Never. That's shame on me. Because it is so precious and so wonderful, and it's been such a delight to study it this week in preparation for you. So let me, first of all, show you the structure of this psalm. And, and I might surprise you by saying to you immediately that it is not entirely about a shepherd and his sheep. We tend to think so. It is also about a gracious host and his guests. I will suggest to you that this psalm shifts at verse 5. It is about a shepherd and his sheep in verses 1 through 4, and then it becomes about a gracious guest and his privileged, a gracious host, I should say, and his privileged guests in verses 5 and 6. Really, the entire psalm, if I were to categorize it in a way that captures both of these sections, is actually about the guardian care and provision of God for his people. That's, that's a good expression, the guardian care. You know what a guardian is. We, by his grace, if we are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, have come under the guardian care of God. And he wants us to see that guardian care and how loving and committed it is to us. But it's as if God says, I'm going to let you see this through two different sets of lens. The first pair of glasses I want you to put on will enable you to see that guardian care from the perspective of a shepherd and a sheep. And then I'm going to have you take those glasses off and put on another pair, and I want you to see that guardian care and love from the perspective of a host, a gracious host, who takes care of and blesses his guests. So let's look at the picture for a few minutes, first of all, from the perspective through the lens of the shepherd and his sheep. Now, it's been read for us by our brother Jason. And I would simply point out to you that verse 1 is, not surprisingly, very foundational to verses 1 through 4. In fact, in a sense, it's foundational to the whole chapter. Because what it does is it makes an assertion. It makes an assertion that contains in it an amazing inference, something inferred, some conclusion that must therefore be drawn. 
upon making the assertion. What is the assertion? Well, you can read it. What the psalmist says, and we believe it was David, though we cannot prove that, but one of the commentators that I read in preparing said, uh, and he himself had been a shepherd for many years, said only someone who had been a shepherd could say the things that this psalmist said, probably David. What is the assertion? The assertion is simply this. The Lord is my shepherd. And then immediately on the heels of the assertion, and in a sense a part of the assertion, but it's what is inferred by the fact that the Lord is his shepherd, is this. And you almost have to insert, for purpose of understanding, the word therefore. You can do that. The Lord is my shepherd, and just, it's not in the Hebrew, I'm not suggesting that, but this is surely the meaning. Therefore, I shall not want. Now, want is still sort of an old English word that um, can be misleading for us, because we associate want always with just simple desire. But the meaning is really more in terms of need. It's the psalmist's way of saying, because the Lord is my shepherd, there will never, ever, ever possibly be a genuine need in my life that is not met by God. I will never have any need unfulfilled because the Lord is my shepherd. That's why I will never truly be in any need. So that's the assertion. And then in verses 2 through 4, the psalmist works out that assertion. He unpacks it. But we need to spend a few more moments with the assertion with verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. Now, who is this shepherd? You say, well, the text has told us. It's the Lord. And you're right. Then I would ask you, who is the Lord? And you might be able to say, because you understand the word, the Hebrew word that is translated Lord, to be Yahweh, and you say, um, Jehovah. And you would be right. And Jehovah is the triune God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit God, who revealed himself to his people <coughs> excuse me, in the Old Testament as the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God who in his own person is omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent, that is, everywhere present, knowing everything, having all power, who is also majestic and independent and sovereign. And this is very important for us to understand because that's where all the blessing comes. None of the things that he's about to say could be true if he were not speaking about the Lord, Jehovah, being the shepherd. I just want to point out to you that This word shepherd is the most intimate metaphor that God himself has used to this point in the Old Testament. He uses the word king to describe himself. He uses the word deliverer. Sometimes he reveals himself as our rock or our shield. But feel the warmth. Feel the tenderness. Feel the relational affection of the word shepherd. That's what we are. That's what pastor means. We just need to be more like the chief shepherd. Shepherd is how God most affectionately describes his relationship to his covenant people. We are not surprised then to hear Jacob just before he's blessing Joseph's children to put it like this. He says, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my 
shepherd all my life long to this day. And then he goes on and prepares to give a blessing to Joseph's two sons. That is not untypical at all of how the Bible describes the God of Israel, the covenant-making, keeping God of Israel, the triune God. I want to read just one more passage for you, however, just to, just to demonstrate how natural this metaphor is in God's describing himself. In Ezekiel 34, God is complaining about the false shepherds. And he says this, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered. So I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples. This is prophetic of our day. When God is calling out of the nations of people for himself. And I will gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines in all the inhabited places of the country. And I will feed them with good pasture. And on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land. And on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and so forth. So, you know, in answer to the question, who is the shepherd? We have to say, first of all, well, the shepherd is the triune God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is Jehovah. But we know who also and who preeminently the shepherd is. But before I identify him, could I just take a moment And ask you not to miss something. Don't miss the amazing, the almost breathtaking contrast between two words. The Lord and shepherd. These two words are placed side by side. They're juxtaposed. That's what that means. And we just read it. We say, the Lord is my shepherd. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Who? Who is my shepherd? The eternal, omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent, glorious, majestic, creator, holy God of the universe condescends to take upon himself the office and vocation of a shepherd? Pastor Ted, do you know what shepherds were in those days? That was a low-class job. It was not a pleasant vocation. It was very demanding. Sheep are not the most intelligent of creatures. They're prone to wander. They're sickly. They get disease. They're exposed to danger. They have to be watched continually. You can't watch them for eight hours and put them in in a pen and then go home and go to bed. They need perpetual care. And they represent, of course, sinners. Sinners like you and me. Sinners who have to agree. With the words of Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. And this Jehovah, this God, takes it upon himself to be our shepherd. It's amazing. It's astounding. Such is the love and guardian care of our God. But as I just hinted a moment ago, we know who this shepherd is in the ultimate, primary, unique sense of the word. What God was to his people in a general way, 
The Lord Jesus Christ became in a very specific and primary way. How do we know that? Because of what the New Testament says about him. Because of what he himself says about himself. Did you know that in the New Testament, there are three expressions concerning Jesus as our shepherd? The one we've been reminded of this morning for Brother Dave, and I appreciate, Dave, how you have constructed the worship of song entirely around us and do this every week. Thank you. He reminded us this morning of the good shepherd. You know what Jesus said in John ten eleven. He said, I am the good shepherd to people who understood the Old Testament well and who understood that he was identifying himself with God and declaring his own deity. In fact, they were angry with him in this chapter because he was making himself equal with God. He says, I am the good shepherd. And what does the good shepherd do? Again, we've been reminded about it and we sang about it. Among other things, he does many things. He protects the sheep. He does not run away when the wolves come like a harling. He, the ultimate thing he does is he lays down his life for the sheep. But our New Testament goes on through the writer to the Hebrews and calls him the great shepherd in Hebrews 10 and verse 20. And It speaks to us about how our great shepherd was raised from the dead so that he may carry on his mediatorial work, among other things, making intercession for us, enabling him to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. We have a living shepherd. And then when the Apostle Peter writes in chapter 5 and verse 4 of his first letter, he describes the Lord Jesus as the chief shepherd. He is the good shepherd. He is the great shepherd. He is the chief shepherd. And the amazing thing is that the shepherd in coming to do his work of shepherding had to make himself a sheep first so that he could be the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He identified with the sheep he was going to save, and having laid down his life and made a perfect atonement for their sins, he is raised from the dead to become the living shepherd, and who will someday, according to the Apostle Peter, give to all of his sheep a crown of glory. And I think it's very interesting that Psalm 23 is found where it is found in the Psalms, where, where is it found? Well, I mean, you could say out of ignorance in between 22 and 25, right? Good answer, better than you realize. Do you know how Psalm 22 pictures the Lord Jesus? Do you know what the first words of that psalm are? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the psalm of the cross. It's the psalm of the shepherd laying down his life for the sheep. Did you know that Psalm 25 is the psalm of the glorious, ascending, reigning Christ? The King of glory who will give A crown of glory to those who are his? One old writer put it like this. In Psalm 22, we have the cross. In Psalm 23, we have the crook. You know what a crook is? That's that curved part on the end of the staff. You know what shepherds would do with their crooks? They would gather their sheep. They would pull them close to them. It wasn't a a rod to beat them, although it could be used in a disciplinary way. And there is some question about what we read in a few minutes when it says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And some believe it's the same piece of wood, which could be used as a rod or a staff. And others say, no, there was a, a rod kept in the belt to beat away animals. But at any rate, the cross, the crook, And the crown. 
And so when we come to Psalm 23 and we see our Lord Jesus Christ as the supreme, ultimate, unique shepherd of his people, we realize that in order for him to shepherd his people and to do all of the things that follow in verses 2 through 6, he must be first the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep and makes a perfect atonement for them and redeems them and satisfies the wrath of God on their behalf and proves to have satisfied it by rising from the dead and eventually ascending to the right hand of God. And now our risen, exalted Savior, Shepherd, can do all of the things that the psalmist tells us about, which enable him to say, because the Lord is my shepherd, I will never, ever, ever have any true need go unmet. So I want you to see that. I want you to appreciate that only the person who understands, and this is, this is where it gets a little personal for you. Can I just insert this sort of as an evangelistic um, interlude here for a moment? Dear people, if you don't understand what Psalm 22 is about when it says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you don't understand that he was being abandoned by his Holy Father because he was becoming the sinner's substitute, because the wrath and justice of God had to be satisfied, it had to be propitiated, all of our sins must be punished, either in us or in a perfect substitute. There's only one perfect substitute. And if you don't understand and make the entire hope of your salvation to rest upon the one who cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if you don't understand that he had to be forsaken to keep you from being forsaken, and if you don't turn that understanding into trust and reliance, you have no right ever to say, the Lord is my shepherd. No, he isn't. And that's one of the terrible and fearful things about this psalm. Quoted all over the world hundreds and thousands times a day by people who have no right to say it. Any more than they have a right to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. If Jesus is not your Savior and your only trust and hope for salvation, your Father is not in heaven. Your Father is in the heavenly places and he's the prince and power of the air. And he's the devil himself. Jesus said that to some people who thought that God was their father. He says, let me tell you who your father is. You are of your father, the devil. And I want you to understand before we go any further in this psalm, this psalm and its blessings do not belong to you if you do not understand Jesus as the shepherd who, as a good shepherd, laid down his life for his sheep because an atonement had to be made. But may I just say this real quickly, too, on the heels of that. I don't want to leave it in such a negative way, because most of you are trusting in him. And so I want to say this to you quickly. This is the opposite truth. For every single one of you who is trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ as the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep, every single blessing in this passage is inevitably yours. They all belong to you. He said, well, what are they? Let's look at them. And I'm going to look at them rather quickly. Now that we've seen that it is this laying down of his life that enables him to be the good shepherd in the way that he describes. And should we be surprised when the Apostle Paul tells us that he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And so here... We see the shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep, graciously giving us all things. What are they? Well, could I just name them categorically? And every single one of these things is found in verse. I'm going to show you, but I'm just going to, I'm just going to blitz you with this. Listen to this. Here's what he gives you. Rest, nourishment, restoration, guidance, his presence, peace, Comfort, and in a sense, the sum total of them all, 
satisfaction. I could have put that first. But I want you to see that it's the general thing. It's just because having laid down his life for the sheep and become and proven himself to be the good shepherd, that he gives us rest and nourishment and refreshment and restoration and guidance and his presence and peace and comfort, which are all of the things that we need in order to be satisfied. And as you listen to me this morning, again, there's only two kinds of people in here. There are some of you that are satisfied and shouldn't be satisfied because you haven't recognized yet what Garrett knew when he was being portrayed in the anti-Psalm 23. Your life is miserable. And you are not satisfied. That's why you have to keep going back again and again and again and again and again to try to find some peace and comfort and joy out of things that that cannot offer peace, comfort, and joy. But others of you know what I speak of this morning. I was telling Tim the other day, someone asked a Scottish minister, who do you think wrote Psalm 23? He said, I wrote it. He said, not really, David beat me to it. But he said, I've come to know the Savior. As this kind of a shepherd, I could have written it. And some of you know the satisfaction, a key word. Peace is another word. And actually in choosing this and addressing the various emotions that are appropriate for the people of God who have found forgiveness in Christ, peace is a wonderful word. I want you to take it away. It is kind of a catch-all word, that, but so is the word satisfaction. Look at, look at verse 2. Here's where you see rest and nourishment. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Doesn't it feel good sometimes when you're exhausted just to lie down? But isn't it also wonderful to be fed when you're hungry? And what about when you're really thirsty? You're just so thirsty. You're dehydrated. Isn't it wonderful to drink Cool, pure, refreshing water. And Jesus says, I'll give you rest. I'll give you nourishment. I'll give you refreshment. I'll lead you beside still waters. But also, I will restore your soul. I will restore it initially when you get converted, of course. But then in your Christian life, many times you are going to become weary. You are going to become guilty. You are going to fall into sin. You are going to be backslidden. You're going to feel defiled. And you're going to need me to restore you and to put you back on your feet. But having put you on your feet, I will lead you. I will lead you in paths of righteousness. Oh, how this world needs people who know what righteousness is and who want to be led in paths of righteousness. We know what righteousness is because we have an ethical system based upon the revelation of a transcendent God. And it isn't whatever we think at this particular time in history. We know what the paths of righteousness are. And this God, this this shepherd God, leads us. That's the second time the word lead has been used. He leads us beside still waters. He leads us in paths of righteousness. Why does he do that? For his name's sake. This is about his glory. And when we do not walk in paths of righteousness, we are not reflecting his glory. But when we do, it brings glory to God because he makes his people different from the people who are in this world. And the psalmist almost says, wait a minute, let me give you an extraordinary situation because all of this. Okay, good, good. Gives you rest, gives you grass, gives you water, uh, gives you guidance. No, he says, let me tell you, let me tell you an even, an even situation. When he's there, even, even when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Now, what is this? Well, we often just immediately think, well, it's when I come to death. And surely that is included. But that probably is not all that the psalmist has in mind. The expression can be somewhat more general. There are many Valleys, dark valleys through which we walk. And as 
one has pointed out, it isn't the valley of death. It's the valley of the shadow of death. And and we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. But that could also mean our great triumph in facing the last enemy and how we just go right through it for the glory of God. And and he's there. But will you notice how we go through the valley of the shadow? Some of us are going to go through the valley of the shadow of death. I was thinking about this this morning. I wonder who's going to die next in our congregation. What a morbid thought. Guess what? Someone's going to die next in our congregation. Someone's going to die next. Who will it be? And if that death approaches slow enough for you to realize what's coming on, will you have a shepherd to walk with you? Notice he's no longer leading. He's beside your side. He's beside you. He's not out in front. He's an escort. He walks with me. Will you have a shepherd to walk so with you when that hour comes? Or when someone dear to you dies? Well, if it includes that, which it surely does, it includes all other valleys through which we are called to walk. And those two are paths of righteousness that he leads us in. And so... In addition to rest and nourishment and refreshment and restoration and guidance, he gives us his presence. How is it that we make it? It is, I've already said, I will fear no evil. I'm not going to be diswrought. I am going to have peace. I am going to have confidence in the hour of death. How so? For you are with me. And then he adds this, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The shepherd's staff draws the sheep close to himself. And so, in addition to these other things, we have peace and comfort in the very presence of death because we have the very presence of our shepherd. All of this is both physical, but especially spiritual. Now, I just want to remind you that the Christian life is a life of movement and progress. And we're moving toward a goal. And we have a purpose in life. And we need to know what our purpose in life is. And we need to be thinking about it on a daily basis. According to this psalm, we don't always walk. There are times when... Having walked vigorously and through difficult places, our good shepherd says, just lie down, rest, let me refresh you. But we don't stay in a restful posture. So just rest until I come back. No, rest, refresh yourself, be restored, and then get up. Because I'm going to lead you in paths of righteousness. We're going somewhere. We're headed somewhere. So we don't always rest, we walk. And we don't always walk, we rest. But when we are tired, he gives us rest. When we are hungry, he gives us food. When we are thirsty, he gives us drink. When we are fallen, he gives us restoration. When we are fearful, he gives us peace and comfort. That's all I'm going to say about the first lens. Let's take the glasses off. We're looking at the guardian care and love of God toward his true people. First through the lens of a shepherd and a sheep. Now, very quickly, through the lens of a host a gracious host, and his guests, verses 5 and 6. What does God's guardian care look like through these lens? Well, it looks like these things. Let me just mention the names again as I did before. It looks like provision. It looks like protection. It looks like gladness. It looks like prosperity or abundance. It looks like perseverance. It looks like sanctuary, a place of shelter. And it looks like communion, fellowship. Where do you see that? Well, just notice very quickly. Verse 5. You you prepare a table before me. You see why it feels a little awkward to think of this as sheep now. Sheep don't eat at tables. It It's still the shepherd, though, in the sense that it's our Savior. You prepare a table before me. It's provision. He gives us what we need. But it's not just provision. It is protection. He does it in the presence of our enemies. 
It's as if God says to us, you eat, you're okay. I do have your back. You're covered. Enjoy the meal. It could be the imagery that was sometimes fulfilled when kings brought their captives into the banquet room, all in chains, and required to sit and watch the general and the king and all his cabinet eat and enjoy a meal in the presence of those enemies. It could be that. But at least we know this, that God provides for his people in the midst of what otherwise would be danger. And we have our enemies. And he provides, he provides a table for us in the presence of all our enemies. We're so blessed. We don't have many enemies in this nation at this time, given the effects of Christianity and common grace. But we do have enemies. We'll always have enemies. But you'll notice that in addition to feeding us, he anoints our heads with oil. You know what that is? That's gladness. That's joy. That's delight. That's pleasure. When you came into a a guest's home in those days, not only were you embraced and your feet were washed, but your head was anointed with a perfume, with an oil. It was a token of joy and delight and festive atmosphere. And then also we find that this, this great host gives us a cup. And he says, here, have something to drink. Oh, it's so full. It's overflowing. Ah, that's the kind of guardian I am. I don't put a little in your cup. I fill your cup to the brim. I cause it to overflow. Your life will be characterized. And we're not talking about money. You can see how health and wealth preachers would take off with this. He gives us what we need. We will not want. We may be very, very poor in, in many regards, and yet filthy rich in other regards. Our cup is full and overflowing. We are prosperous. We have abundance. But then notice, it says in verse 6, surely, this is something I'm certain of, goodness and mercy, otherwise translated steadfast love shall follow me all the days of my life now you know follow there doesn't mean merely bring up the rear follow there means pursue pursue here we have god out in front of us and it's as if he sent two angels called goodness and mercy and they're behind us but they're always pursuing us and giving us what we continually need in order to persevere in this Christian life, in this world where there are enemies. We need the goodness of God, and we need the steadfast love or mercy of God pursuing us. And that's what enables us to persevere, and that's why I put perseverance as one of the blessings. How long will we have those graces? All the days of our life. God will never quit pursuing us with the angels quote-unquote, of goodness and mercy. But then comes the ultimate blessing. Under the previous image, when we wore the lens, causing us to see a shepherd and his sheep, we were brought up to the very river of death, and we saw comfort. Comfort being with us in our last moments in this world. But now, now we enter another world. Now we arrive at our ultimate goal. What is God's ultimate goal? God's ultimate goal is to bring us to himself. He sent his son in order to bring us to himself so that someone could live the life that we haven't lived and die the death that we don't want to die so that our sins could be forgiven, so that we could be reconciled to God, so that we could be brought into his family, so that, so that, so that we can be with him. This is what Piper had in mind when he said God is the gospel. You should read that book just from that perspective. The best news of all is at the end of the whole process of forgiveness and reconciliation and justification and adoption, etc., etc., etc. The end of it all is God. We get God. We get to we get to live in his house, the house of the Lord forever. 
And that's why I described it as sanctuary. Finally, we lay down our implements of war because we are a part of the church uh, militant. And we enter the church victorious. And the eternal state begins. And the earth is renewed. And we dwell in the presence of God himself who is the temple. And we have direct, immediate, blissful, inexpressible joy and glory for all eternity. And guess how it's described in the book of Revelation? I I was shocked to see this again. I knew it was there, but I forgot that these two things were put together. Listen to how it is, how it reads. Therefore, they, that is the totality of the people of God, not only the 144,000, which represents the entirety of God's people, old and new covenant, but the multitudes of people, they are there before the throne of God, serving him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither shall they thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. Now listen, for the Lamb is in the midst of the throne. The Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. Lamb, shepherd. Is Jesus a lamb or is he a shepherd? Is he a lamb or a lion? Is he the priest who offers the sacrifice or is he the sacrifice? These are questions which all require the answer, yes, he is both. He is the lamb is going to be in that blessed eternal place where we dwell with God on this earth. He will be in our midst as our shepherd. But I have to tell you again, he will not be your shepherd. You will not be in that place if you don't see your need of an atonement and turn from your sins and call upon him for mercy. I have to conclude. This is how I'm going to conclude, though it may seem somewhat abruptly. I want to ask you, as you have listened to me this morning, and you heard um, Paulison's imaginary anti-Psalm 23. You heard it. And I have to ask you, as I ask myself, what is your song this morning? Is it anti-Psalm 23? Does honesty require you to say that's really what my life is about? Or is it truly Psalm 23? For Garrett, and we have Garrett among us, and we have Sarah among us, and we have Lise among us, and we have Chandra among us. Not literally, but symbolically. And that's your psalm is anti-Psalm 23. But it could be the real Psalm 23. As I conclude, I want you to observe, if you haven't already observed, how personal this relationship is between the, the sheep and the shepherd, between the guest and the host. Did you notice the usage of the personal pronouns? Did you think about it? The Lord is my shepherd. My shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me. Me. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. All the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. See how personal that is? Christianity is a lot more than just doctrinal truth. 
It is that. But it's much more. Many, many people know Psalm 23 but don't know the shepherd or the host. And I want to ask you, do you have a personal relationship with this shepherd? Can you use those personal? Luther said that the essence of the blessing of being a Christian lives in the ability to use personal pronouns. And did you notice the present tense? The Lord is my shepherd. He makes me. He continually makes me to lie down. And did you also notice the shift from he to you? It was in some of the songs that we sang this morning as well. I won't quote it now or take time, but it happened twice in the songs that we sang. We move from he to you. And the psalmist moves from he to you. It's all he. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not. He makes me lie down. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths. And then all of a sudden in the middle of verse 4, for you are with me. What's the big deal? The big deal is this. Until you move from your knowledge about God to your knowledge of him, until you move from your ability to speak in those terms of he and him to the terms of you, you have not become a Christian. Christianity is essential, a personal relationship with a forgiving God who shows his guardian care as a shepherd. And the last thing I want to ask you this morning is, are you satisfied? Are you really satisfied? You know, because if you're really satisfied, if you can honestly, truthfully say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not, I will never ever have something that could be called a genuine need in my life unmet. If you can honestly say that, you can never say, but. But what? Well, the Lord is my shepherd, but I've got to have a boyfriend. I've got to have a girlfriend. I've got to have companionship. I've got to have a romantic relationship. I'm not fulfilled without it. I'm worried about what people will think of me. She must not be very attractive. He must not be very charming and handsome. You're a slave. Do not say, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want because you lack. But when you have him, you don't lack. You don't need sex. You don't need alcohol. You don't need money. You don't need success. You don't need popularity. You don't need power, influence, houses, cars, gadgets, stuff. You don't need anything. You may want some things, but you say, I don't need it. I have him. Why don't you need all these things? There's a simple answer. The Lord is my shepherd. And I leave you with that question. Is he your shepherd? If he isn't, go to him today, right now, in the pew, before, before we sing, or we're not going to sing, before we leave. Go to him. Lord Jesus Christ, you who are the good shepherd, who died for the sheep, forgive me of my sins. I trust your atonement. I want you to shepherd my life. I need your guidance. I don't want to be like Garrett and Lise. I want to have all of my needs met in you. And if you do that sincerely, genuinely, you'll be saved. You'll be saved before you walk out the door. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this psalm. We confess that we have only scratched the surface of the beauty and the glory that lies within it. And my prayer for this people and for myself this morning is that this will only whet all of our appetites to think and to meditate much, much more on the beauty of you being our shepherd and our gracious host. Lord, forgive us for not thinking of ourselves more frequently as sheep who desperately need a shepherd. Forgive us for taking for granted all of these things so frequently. May we live in a daily consciousness 
of what it means to find our rest and our nourishment and our refreshment and our restoration and our protection and our provision and our comfort and all of these things from you. Lord, be gracious to any today who came in here and had no right to ever quote Psalm 23. Give them that right before this day is over. May they trust in Jesus, and may it become for them an honest confession. We pray in his name. Amen.